good job ripping me off and losing me money. I had to think about it because I always say it sarcastically if I don't. I mean it sincerely. Good job losing me money, ripping me off, causing me to lose my profit, said no boss anywhere ever, except in this parable today that we're looking at, in this story that Jesus told his followers in Luke 16, 1 through 13. We're continuing our series in the parables called Hidden Hope, and this is an unusual parable. Each character in it, and that's usually as we look at the parables where we get the meaning, each character is is a little shady, kind of sketchy. The authority figure praises a dishonest manager. I, I mean, I seriously had to practice that this morning. I'm still not sure it came out without sarcasm because it's hard to say something like that. Sincerely, how would you praise someone who loses you money, someone who reduces your debtor's amount owed to you, and how do you even do that? So those characters all kind of sketchy. It all seems, as we look at the passage, kind of backwards. And then at the end, Jesus makes this very surprising statement about basically making friends and getting to heaven using unrighteous wealth. It's all kind of backwards. Or maybe not. Or maybe it is. Look closely with me, and, and I think you'll find, as with all the parables, the hidden hope. It's not too deep buried too deeply, but also some tools to help us make better decisions now and have that hope for the future. Would you read with me Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. We're just going to read 1 through 8 to start. This is God's Word. Luke 16, verse 1. Now he, Jesus, was also saying to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and the manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master's taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll, I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to the, another, How much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write down 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. This is God's Word. Lord, thank You for Your Word, that it is trustworthy and true, even when it seems to speak opposite 
Even when it seems challenging, Lord, give us Your Spirit. Work with Your Word as You have promised that we might be more like Jesus. We pray in His precious name. Amen. So Luke 15 was aimed primarily at the Pharisees. Those lost items, the the coin, the sheep, the sons. Jesus was addressing the criticisms of the Pharisees about why Jesus associated with certain people. And the disciples were kind of listening in on that. Now we get to Luke 16 and it's kind of reversed where it says explicitly Jesus is talking to the disciples and we'll see later on in the middle of the chapter, verse 15 and following, that the Pharisees are there listening and Jesus begins to interact with them afterwards. And the whole topic, for the most part in, in Luke 16, is, is money. We see rich men, verse 1, 19, 21, 22. We see poor men, verse 20, verse 22. We see debtors in verse 5 and debts in verse 5 and 7. There's concerns about begging and comments about wealth. There is stewardship, management, very much in view, especially in our passage with the manager and his management and his need to give an account for how he is managing. There's also squandering and faithfulness. Righteousness and unrighteousness. And if you put all these things together and reflect on them a little bit, you realize that what it's all about is about living wisely. What does it look like to live wisely? What does it look like to make good decisions? Especially in the financial realm, but very often the Scriptures are pointing beyond just the immediate issue. This is, this is very much about wisdom throughout this chapter. About answering the question, what shall I do? And you heard the manager ask himself that question and then decide, this is what I shall do. But the word for doing actually appears not only in verse 3 and 4, but also in verses 8 and 9. It's about decision-making. What shall I do? And if you think about your own life and I think about my life, we've got lots of options for what to do. It's not like the pandemic anymore, right? You pretty much, you know, you get up and, and you don't do anything. Now you can do stuff. Things are opening up. Well, life is getting back to super busy and there's lots of noise. There's political races going on. There's all kinds of activity all things happening all around us, work, school, jobs, all that kind of stuff. There's lots of noise. And you want to follow God, and you want to make good decisions, but you're being pulled in so many directions. About your time and your finances, about your desires, your hopes and your dreams. So how, in the midst of all that, do you make better decisions? This interesting and unusual passage is going to lead the way, but it starts with one fundamental reality, that your resources belong to God. Your time, your talent, your treasures, God is the owner of all. We see that in a surprising way in this passage. The parable starts with the rich man who had this manager, and the rich man is also called a master. Uh, Kurios is the Greek word, it could mean lord, Lord. As in like, Lord, Lord, it could mean Lord as in just Sir, 
someone who is in authority and oversight. It could be a respectful way to speak to someone. But here, he's the guy who owns all the resources in the story. He's the owner. He's the one that people owe money to. He's the one who has the stuff that's hiring the manager and firing the manager. And as we look at this passage and you look at other parables and you see the theme throughout, you realize, you know, I think maybe the owner is corresponding to God somehow, as much authority figures do in the parables. Luke 15, we saw last week, the father of the two sons, the authority figure, corresponded to God and his love and his grace. Back in Luke chapter 12, there was an owner who goes away and he entrusts things to the steward and and he's the authority figure. You've got kings and masters with servants. You've got vineyard owners. And you've got the reality that God owns all. The Scriptures just talk about that throughout. Psalm 50, verse 10. Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains. Everything that moves in the field is mine. And then God says in Psalm 50, verse 12, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. It's the owner of all. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Job 41, 11. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The Lord is the owner of all. All that there is, your resources, they all belong to God. Your time, your talents, your treasure, everything. And so we look at this passage and we go, well, is the owner, does he correspond to God? Is he revealing to us something about God? Because it seems like he's doing weird things. He's praising an unrighteous manager who ripped him off, who lost him money in a dishonest way, not by doing what was right. It doesn't sound like the rich man corresponds to God directly, but kind of in a backward way. And hold on to that thought, because you could say the same thing about the manager. He corresponds to God's people in a backward way. Jesus is speaking with the disciples, verse 1. We read Luke 16, 1. Lost my glasses. He was saying to the disciples, Jesus is there speaking about a manager and his management and managing. And if you look through the Scriptures and the parables, then most of the managers are meant to correspond to followers of Jesus, to God's people. Luke chapter 12, the wise manager who's alert and keeps awake while his owner goes away and he waits for him to come back. It's just one example. But this manager, rather than doing what was right, does what is wrong. Rather than managing, which means, the Greek word here is combination of the Greek word for house and the Greek word for distribute. The one who was supposed to distribute stuff in the house. The one who was over the things under the owner. To make sure that people got the resources they need at the right time, in the right quantity, at the right place, all of that. That was his job, and this manager doesn't do that. He's accused of squandering the resources, of of scattering them like seed. The same word that we saw in the parable last week of the prodigal son, the one who wasted, who squandered the wealth that he had. 
The image is scattering seeds all over. And yet, God's people are called to stewardship, to manage, to recognize that what we have is entrusted to us by God. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 is one of the best summaries of that. As each one has received a special gift, Peter says, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. That all that we do, word and deed, serving, all that we have in our resources, it it all comes from God and we are called to manage it. It's, It's entrusted to ours. In a sense, it's not ours. But that's always been the plan. That it was all God's and we were to manage it. Human beings were created to exercise dominion or rule over creation under God. We were supposed to be a representation of God on the earth. Genesis 1, 26-28. Genesis 2, 15. Kind of make that really clear. But then Genesis 3 comes along and we read what? That we rejected that role. Well, partway, right? We like the ruling and dominion, but not so much the under God part. We want to be in charge. We chose to walk our own path instead of the way God would have us to live. In fact, is that tension that we're supposed to be under God and over creation. It's that tension that's in this passage. It's that tension that's in us every time we're in some form of leadership position, whether it's as a pastor, elder, as a teacher in a classroom, as an employer, employee, even as a parent. We all have a problem staying under God while we are overseeing anything. We tend to misuse and abuse. So we're kind of like the steward, but this guy is really going off the rails, acting in his own interest and rejecting what the owner wants for him. God is the owner of all. You're a manager. And yet for the parable, this manager corresponds to us in kind of a backward way. The owner corresponds to God in a backwards kind of way, negative kind of way, uh, opposite of what it should be kind of way. And so hold those two ideas just for a sec. Because we're going to dig in a little deeper now and recognize, first of all, you know, not, not only is it true that your resources belong to God, but that you will account for how you used resources. You will account for how you used the resources. And the question for us is, you know, will you get praise? Will, will you be commended for how you used resources? The Scriptures are clear that a reckoning is going to come. The parable points to that with the manager getting ratted out by someone in verse 2. He called him, the owner called the manager and said, what is this I hear about you? What's this accusation I hear? Give an accounting of your management. You can no longer be manager. And the manager says, what shall I do? 
He doesn't say, you have no right to call me to account. He says, you don't, you don't have a right to look at the books and to how I was working. The owner had every right to look. He doesn't argue the consequences. I'm going to be fired. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. But there's this weird thing going on where he's been ratted out, and the, the owner seems to know there's something wrong, and he's basically saying, you can't be manager anymore, but he's still in the position. I don't know if it's because the manager, the owner is far away. don't know if it's because the manager was tasked with putting the books in order before he could quit. It's, it doesn't say. It's not clear. But whatever is going on, there's this space of time before the reckoning that's in the future where the manager has some opportunity to act. And he asks that question. What shall I do? What would you do in that position? You've done wrong. What would you do? I'm going to guess most of you would probably be like, I need to apologize. I need to make this right somehow. I've got to change my ways. You know, whatever happens. You know, I need this guy as a reference. Whatever the motivation, right? You would probably deal with the fact that you had done something wrong. But look what he does. Who does he account for? His focus is on himself. Verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. What do I do? How do I take care of myself? Verse 4, I know what I'll do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. You know, recognizing that you're going to give account for, your, for the resources that you've been given, the question you ask now, while you have time, is who do you account for now? He's accounting for himself. That's it. His thoughts and concerns don't go beyond his immediate needs, his immediate circumstances, and what he can do for himself. Verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors. He began saying to the first, how much do you owe? He says, a hundred measures of oil. Take your bill, write down 50. The next one, how much do you owe? 100 measures a week. He said, take your bill, write down 80. These amounts, by the way, are extravagant. These are huge debts. One commentator says the amount of oil is equal to three years of wages for a typical laborer in those days. The amount of wheat was enough to feed 150 people for a year. About seven and a half years of wages. It was say the average wage was only $40,000 or something like that, right? Tens of thousands of dollars. None, none of these people involved are poor. The debtors nor the owner. They seem to be pretty well off, able to manage those kind of debts. We don't know all of that for sure. But an interesting tidbit about it is that each of the debts that he reduced, he reduced the same amount in what we would say as dollar values roughly about two years' worth of wages. And so some, some, some people look at that and say, well, there's, there must be some things about the management that we don't know, and, and we want to try to make the manager a good guy in some ways. And so maybe he's reducing his commission. Maybe he's reducing unjust interest rates. Maybe there's something else going on there, but it's all just speculation. The text says nothing about what he's doing. It just says that he reduced the debts. The people owed the owner. Acting as the owner's representative, not seeming to act 
in the owner's best interest. He's only thinking of himself. And so the question is, you know, since you're going to account for how you used resources, who do you account for now? Who factors in? And that's going to determine, in a lot of ways, your decision-making now and what you will hear then. Who do you account for now? What will you hear then on that reckoning day? You, you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Anybody not want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Anyone want to hear, you, you, you messed it all up. You ruined everything. Anyone want to hear that? We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's another parable. Jesus talks about stewardship and management. Matthew 25, uh, verses 21 and following. Luke 19, verses 17 and following in that area. We, we all have a problem, though, of being able to hear those words. Because whether you've been as unjust and, and, and as, as bad as this manager, as dishonest as him, every one of us, has a huge barrier to hearing well done, good and faithful servant. And the issue is that every one of us has failed. That none of us have been good and faithful perfectly. And we all have a huge debt piled up to God. We've all sinned in word and thought and deed, done what God didn't want us to do or Failed to do what he did want us to do. You just think about your life. Say, just even once a day, you had one bad word enter your mind. Your one bad thought. You did one bad deed over the course of your life. You're racking up lots of debts. You know, in business, debts, negatives are, are written in red ink very often, right? And we have Black Friday coming up this Friday, which historically has been kind of an accounting term. It was about, and I'm not sure if it's still true or not, but back in the day, that would be the Friday, that was the day, Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, when the retailers finally were making enough money to cover the expenses they'd spent so far this year. So when they totaled up expenses minus income, it was in the negative until Black Friday, when finally the income exceeded. And sometimes we begin to think, you know what? All I have to do is get my income, my good deeds, to, to overcome my bad deeds. And then it'll balance out, and that's not the way God's accounting works. You only have to fail once in God's standard of system. He wants perfection. Be perfect, he says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. God can't tolerate any imperfection any more than you'd want one rotten egg in your omelet. It's repulsive to God. But you can get to Black Friday. You can hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and it's because you can go through Good Friday. Where God himself took on human nature, uniting himself to us, paying the full penalty for our debts. So that it's not our good deeds that have canceled out those bad deeds. It is the punishment that God put upon Christ. That that red ink charging up our debts was taken over and blotted out by the blood of Jesus. Washed clean. Accepted by faith. 
receiving that gift from Him. That we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's what, that's what we want deep down. That's the longing of our hearts. And yet here in this parable, the owner essentially says, well done, to the dishonest manager. He praises him for losing him money. And so, what's up with that? Our last point, I'm, I should clear it up. Your resources belong to God. You will account for how you use resources. And so, our last point is, purposefully factor God into your plans. Factor God into your plans on purpose. And the, and the reality is that is not the way the world works. That is not the way the world does things. It's backwards for the world. The world celebrates the shrewd. Verses 8 and 9. The picture is there. Verse 8. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. There's a lot of debate about this verse and the next couple of verses about how to interpret them. The key question for me is with respect to, to, to what? What's going on here with the shrewdness? Why does Jesus then continue in verse 8? The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. I think what Jesus is saying is, in fact, that the owner has a very similar mindset to the manager. That the owner and the manager, both being sons of this age, think shrewdness is one of the highest values. They think that being able to cleverly manipulate circumstances and use whatever resources are available to you to make sure you provide for yourself, even if it costs other people, they th that's, that's the way to go. That's commendable. They appreciate a good scheme. Because the goal is to secure your future in this age, however you can. Because there's no more to life, right? Be, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Rip off who you can, especially if you can get away with it by your cleverness. Look out for yourself and we will celebrate you. Shrewdness is, is that aspect of wisdom that's, that's deficient, that only accounts for understanding the way the world works. Shrewdness recognizes how people work. Shrewdness looks at our circumstances and says, what can I get out of this? Not accounting for God. And it is praised and celebrated by the world. Look out for yourself, the world says. And Jesus talks along those lines in verse 9, which is the most surprising verse of this passage. Verse 9, he says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Make friends with 
unrighteous means so that when it fails, they will receive you, your friends, into the eternal dwellings. And what, This is another very highly debated, lots of opinions on this. But what clarified it for me, and I'm, I'm open to talking about it at a different time, but what clarified, it for, clarified this for me was which dwellings? What are these eternal dwellings that Jesus is talking about? Everything in this passage has been kind of backward, right? The owner corresponds to God kind of in a backwards way. The manager corresponds to God kind of in a backward way. Jesus says the master praises this unrighteous manager. Uh, It's all kind of backwards, and then everything in the passage is that way. And now... Jesus says these words about making friends. Commentators twist themselves all around to make eternal dwellings into heaven. Somehow saying this is a statement about how how we wind up in heaven, being welcomed in heaven. Saying it's God who's welcoming them, even though it's they there. I think this is Jesus speaking in a backward way. That this is finally maybe the punchline, the grid to interpret everything that's happened so far in this whole parable. He's speaking backwards, and he means the opposite. And the key to that is those last two words, because he uses these words at the end of verse 9 that echo are parallel with verse 4, when the manager schemes through unrighteous wealth, using someone else's stuff to make sure he's taken care of and welcomed into the debtor's homes. Jesus is saying, go ahead and do that. Use those resources that aren't yours Make friends with the sons of this age without factoring God into your plans, and those friends will welcome you into their eternal dwellings. Which eternal dwellings? If you've operated your whole life without bringing God into the picture, where are your eternal dwellings going to be? They're not going to be with God. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is that the world celebrates the shrewd and welcomes them into hell. That's that's hard. The Lord honors the faithful. The world celebrates the shrewd The Lord honors the faithful. He calls us to full wisdom, not to perfection. We cannot achieve it. The Lord calls us to faithfulness, which starts with recognizing His faithfulness and our failure. To say, you know what, I need this Jesus to take away my debt. I need Jesus to handle my problems. I need Jesus to set me free from the power of sin, from the guilt of sin, from the shame of sin. I need Jesus for this. And and, And coming to Him and recognizing who this God is, I can be set free from those and factor Him in. That's the first thing, right? You have to factor God in. And the first way to do this is recognize I'm unfaithful and God is always faithful. He never fails. He always does what He says and He always does what is right. And He loved us so much that He came in the human flesh to do that, united Himself in a mysterious way with humanity to do what was right, to be that faithful one. Jesus Christ is the only one who was faithful. And so to factor God in is ultimately the start there with Jesus 
and understanding that He needs to be a part of all of our plans. That we need to factor God into your plans on purpose. How do you do that? I've got three really, I think, super practical ways to bring it all home. First, how do you factor God into your plans? If He owns everything and if you're going to be accountable, how do you factor God into your plans? Number one, make plans. Make plans that reflect reality. A reality that includes God. And reality around you. Don't just respond to life as it comes to you. Take some time, even a tiny bit of time, to make some plans. God has given you resources. He has given you time, the same number of hours in a week as everyone else. He's given you talents and gifts, at least some form of gift to serve. He has given you treasure, and it might not be much, and it might be debts. So if you think about that, make some plans with your finances. Make a budget that lists your expenses and your income. Commit to setting aside some portion for God, even if it's tiny. Make a budget, make a plan, look at your income and say, God, I'm going to put a dollar away for you this week, even though I'm not sure that I'm ever going to be able to get out of the debt that I am. I'm going to put a dollar away for you and I'm going to give it somewhere. Look at your time. How are you spending your time? Make a budget of your time. Consider your work hours, your family hours, your leisure time and play hours. Consider how much time you've made available for God. How are you serving Him? Think about your life. and Say, where could I put some time, even a little bit of time, to serve God? Factoring Him in to my busy life. Think about your relationships. Make some plans Think about your emotions. You know, how many of the important people in your life, your spouse, your kids, close friends, how, do they, how much of them get what's left over after other activities? Make some plans. How much have you considered your emotional energy? You know, do you just respond to what comes at you? Have you ever noticed that whenever you listen to that particular podcast, or talk radio person, or whenever you read that particular blog, that, that you're just a jerk? to the people around you? Have you ever noticed that when you read this other thing, you know what, you're, you're excited and you're fun to be around. You're, you're, you're happier. You'll maybe put more of that in and less of the other. Think about your emotions. Plan. Make a plan that reflects reality and then hold yourself accountable. This is number two. Make plans that reflect reality in your finances, your time, relationships, and then hold yourself accountable by asking who benefits. Or ask yourself, who are these plans serving? Right? Audit your time, your talents, your treasure, where they're going, and ask who it's benefiting. And some of it has to benefit you. You know when you're on the airplane and, and they tell you that spiel that you don't pay any attention to and they talk about the oxygen mask coming down, right? They always say, parents, make sure you put your oxygen mask on before your kids because if you can't breathe, you're not going to be able to help them, Right? You have, to benefit, you have to have benefits. God has given you resources to take care of yourself. Make sure you do. Make sure you eat and sleep. You work and you play. Spend time with your family. And 
You need to use resources that God has given you in ways that intentionally serve His purposes with your gifts. Even if it's small, and if you have to start small. I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray for this at this time. Maybe you, you want to take a, a turn, a rotation in the children's ministry. Or maybe now, maybe you start gearing yourself up for next year's kids fair. Lord, I'm, I'm going to be there that night. What, whatever it is. We, we've got some kids coming on a Sunday afternoon in a couple weeks from our community for a Christmas party. Hour and a half. Maybe, maybe that's a place where you can serve and get a taste of ministering to them. See, what the Lord calls us to here in verse 13 is, is loyalty to Him. When we talk about faith, when we talk about factoring God in, the, the way that it goes above just our horizontal realities of what we see is to believe that God is involved. And he talks about loyalties. No servant can serve two masters. He either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. God and stuff. You've got to put God first. And so make plans that reflect reality. Give an audit of yourself. Think about how you're spending your time. Get wise input is the third thing. You make plans, ask yourself, audit yourself, who's this serving? Is it serving me or others? Is it balanced? And then get some wise input. It's our third point. Get outside opinion from godly people. Ask them, hey, this is what I'm thinking. Is this, is this reasonable? Am I balancing faith in God and, uh, and reality? Am I hopefully naive about how the world works? Am I forgetting God and just putting it all on myself? You need outside input on that. We, we all do. Every single person needs that outside input. So you could talk to one of our elders. They'd be happy to talk to you. Our deacons, you know, that, that input is something we all need. I need it. And you guys called me as as senior pastor, the ministry of the word and prayer, to, to be the main leader and thinking about the church as a whole. And I love that. I love preaching. I love preparing messages. Pastor Dave graciously offered to preach because he heard that I was sick you know, the other day. And at short notice, he said, yeah, I'll preach. I'm like, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be crawling up my deathbed, ugh, coughing like I was last week. It never occurred to me not to preach. In fact, when I had COVID diagnosis a couple years ago, the elders made me not come. I was like, ugh! He said, no. Like, All right, you're right. And so what happens is, right, I could put all of my time into that effort and ignore other things. And there are other things that I should be ignoring to put my time into that. I can't do everything. I can't be everywhere. One real practical example is giving people rides and stuff, right? I look at that and I'm like, yeah, I have a car. My job's pretty flexible. And is God calling me to spend a day driving someone somewhere? Maybe. I don't think so. Because I know there's people in the congregation who love doing that who are available, they have the car, 
I know the deacons have mercy funds available that we can help people. But then I go, well, am I just being selfish? Who's benefiting? And it's like, yeah, I get to do what I like. And so what do I do? I ask for input. I listen to all kinds of podcasts and read, and I talk to the elders, and I pray, and I get input from my peers and friends about what what does it look like to be a healthy senior pastor? And there's no single answer for that, but based on my gifts and that kind of thing. You know, these are the kind of things that, that I'm thankful I have the luxury of, of engaging in that kind of thought. And I'm not, you know, we, we, none of, not everybody has that time to be able to think that through. But brothers and sisters, if, if, if you're not factoring God in, in some very practical way, like making plans that reflect reality, like holding yourself accountable and saying, who, who am I benefiting? If you're not getting wise input, you're, you're not going, you won't help but do make worse decisions. If you want to make good decisions, this is the kind of thing you need. This is the kind of thing we all need. Ever since the fall of human beings, making decisions is hard, but Jesus offers us hope right here. This kind of backwards parable and the surprising parable. Uh, using these negatives to point the way to a positive. And you have tough decisions to make. We, we all do. And if you want to make better decisions, factor God in to your plans on purpose, knowing you're going to account for how you use the resources, remembering that your resources, everything you have, belongs to him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your blessings to us through your word, through your people, through wise counselors. Lord, I pray that each one of us would would take a couple of steps, at least just one, of of making plans that reflect reality. Even just maybe, Maybe we just focus on our finances or maybe we focus on our time. Maybe we focus on our relationships and just start there, Lord, and make a plan. And then hold ourselves accountable in it and say, Lord, is this benefiting? Is this self-serving or is this honoring you? Am I, am I pouring myself out too much that I'm going to be unhealthy and burn out? Or am I balancing, Lord? And help us to do that by getting some wise input. Not just individually, Lord, but as a church, as we head into the budget season starting up. Lord, help us to make plans that reflect reality, that both balance faith in you, and belief that you can do all things, and yet also, Lord, understanding the world and our present economy and our neighborhood and the gifts you've given to us and where we are in history and time. And that, Lord, we would do things that benefit not just us or not just the community around us and that don't just focus solely on worshiping you, but, Lord, bring all of those things together and give us wise input, Lord. Help us to listen to each other as we go through that process the elders and deacons and broadening it out to the congregation, the feedback and the videos and the conversations, Lord. Make it all work together that next year, Lord, our plans reflect reality and they are solid because, Lord, you are in it. And then we can make some decisions and follow through on them. And, Lord, we can have this kind of peace and confidence that only you offer. We pray it all in your name, King Jesus. Amen.